reading this morning from John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Father, we thank you for this reading of your word, and we pray that you would bless this time of of ministry and preaching your word, uh, that you would be pleased with uh, our worship this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, we come now to a, a, a new section in the Gospel of John. We've been studying uh, John for a little over two years now. We've studied the first 12 chapters which deal with uh, the public ministry of Jesus and his working of miracles and signs showing that he indeed was the Messiah. We come to chapter 13 and chapters 13 through 19 are chapters that speak of the private ministry of Jesus. It is a ministry that is given to only his disciples. Interesting part about these chapters, all the way through chapter 19, is that all of these chapters happen in one day. It's just one one day, and Jesus goes to the cross. It's very interesting that the Gospel of John is often called the Gospel of Love. And that's because John speaks of the love of God more than any other New Testament writer. John John is filled with this theme. In fact, the word love is used so frequently in and throughout the world that it has lost much of its meaning. I understand that in the, in the Scandinavian language of, of Gaelic, there's 17 different words for our single word, love. There are four words in the Greek language for the one word, love. Society seems to be obsessed with love. Love dominates almost every area of life. 
Its theme can be found in movies, books, advertising, in newspapers, talk shows, the Internet, just to name a few. Yet, as much as love is talked about and used in various ways throughout the world, it is one of the most misunderstood words in human language. It is one of the greatest of human emotions. Love is generally portrayed as a mere feeling, seeking some unfulfilled desire or the longings of the heart that are never quite satisfied, cravings that are never met. The world's version of love is self-focused and manipulative. It views the rest of the world as tools to gratify itself. This kind of love that we see in Scripture is not a blind feeling. It is not a simple emotion alone. It is a willingness to be deliberately devoted to the one loved. It has more to do with one's will than it does with one's feelings. Feelings ride on the t- on the on the tail coats of love. The essence of love is self-sacrifice. It cares more about others than it does itself, although self enters that picture. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24, Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. It takes real love for that to take for that to happen. He writes to the Philippians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interest, which is something we naturally do, but also to the interests of others. In this chapter, and the chapters to follow, Jesus unpacks the truths about himself and about life as a believer that are significant to the events that are going to take place very soon after this. The very first of these truths that Jesus shares is that of love. His love for his own. I find it interesting that in these chapters, Jesus centers his thoughts on his own disciples. He is not concerned for himself so so much until we get to chapter 17 uh, and we are into the garden and then on into chapter 17 that we see he speaks of himself and his disciples. Now it says in these two, this chapter falls into two categories, two, two major sections. Verses 1 through 20 describes the foot washing of the disciples. And verses 21 to 30 
is the announcement by Jesus of his impending betrayal by one of his own. Who is really not one of his own. An imposter. Verse 1 says, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There is a seeming conundrum to to this first verse. A problem with some critics who said that Jesus uh, did not eat the Passover with his disciples. And they cite John 18 verse 28 as uh, as proof this is what it says in verse in 18 verse 28 then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters it was early in the morning they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the passover now that is later when Jesus has been tried And he's being led from one place to another. In chapter 13, we see him going into the Passover feast. So critics say that there's a discrepancy here. Uh, Critics are always trying to find discrepancies in Scripture. This is not new. It's always happened from the very beginning. So it is said that the supper that we see in chapter 13 of John was a separate meal and not the Passover meal. But it certainly is the Passover meal. And there's a long and complicated explanation of this in John 18, verse 28, which which speaks of uh, the Passover again. The difference here is between the Pharisees And how they judged time. And how the Sadducees judged time. MacArthur explains. Ancient Jewish sources suggest that Jews from the northern part of Israel, including Galilee, where Jesus and the twelve were from, counted days from sunrise to sunrise, just like we do. Most of the Pharisees, apparently, also used that method. On the other hand, the Jews in the southern regions of Israel counted days from sunset to sunset. That would include the Sadducees, who of necessity lived in the vicinity of Jerusalem because they were connected to the temple. Though no doubt confusing at times, that dual method of reckoning days would have had practical benefits at Passover allowing the feast to be celebrated on two consecutive days. That would have eased the crowds, the crowded conditions in Jerusalem, especially in the temple, where all the lambs would not have had to be killed on the same day. <clears throat> so what you have is the Pharisees celebrating the Passover on a different day than the Sadducees, But it was the same feast. So when it says, now before the feast of the Passover, that Passover is referring not to just one day, but to seven days. 
It was a seven-day feast that was commemorated for the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage in Exodus chapter 12. Jesus knew beforehand that his hour would come. He knew this from the very beginning. In fact, we look back, we see that in in chapter 2, verse 4, at the wedding feast where he turned the water into wine, Jesus said to his mother who had asked him about that, he said, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, which indicates that he knew it was coming. And of course, he knew all things. Again, in chapter 7, verse 8, he was asked if he would go up to the feast at Jerusalem. He said, I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not fully come. Jesus had already stated in chapter 12, verse 27, that the purpose for, his purpose for coming into the world was to come to this hour. The hour that we see in chapter 13. Through 17, through 19. And so, it is in this knowledge that he begins to prepare himself and those whom he had chosen out of the world to be his own. He is preparing them for what is coming. These people, it is said, are taken out of the world. And they're made into a new and separate entity belonging only to God. Do you see the exclusivity in this? This is one of the reasons people hate Christians. is because they, they preach, they say, that we're the, Christ is the only way. And if you don't know Christ, there's no other way. It is exclusive of those who do not believe. These people, Jesus has drawn from the masses of mankind, and they are in stark contrast to the rest of the world in general. This is made clear in John chapter 15, verse 9, where Jesus said, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore... The world hates you. This then makes the object of Christ's love not the world in general, though he does love the world as his creation. We see that in Matthew 5. He does love them with a common grace that allows them to live even though they have disobeyed and rejected his word, his law. But it is those whom he has called out of it with a saving grace that become his own. They are the newly formed people of God. They are the disciples of Christ, the church, and the community of the elect. Jesus loved them all along. And he continues to love them in the most sacrificial way known to man by the sacrifice 
of himself on the cross. This is what it means when it says he loved them to the end. <laughs> it could be said he loved them to the uttermost. There is no greater love. There is no more full love than that of Jesus Christ going to the cross and dying in the place of sinners like you and me. This is love in its fullest extent, which extends his love to them and for them even after his death and into eternity. Think of it. Jesus loved us before we were born. He loves us presently enough to call us to himself and make us his own. And he will love us forever throughout all eternity. There's nothing that you can do. There's no deed that you can accomplish that will make God love you more than he loves you at this very moment. Christ's love is perfect. And it extends even through eternity. Paul calls it a love that surpasses knowledge in Ephesians 3.19. And in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 to 39, he goes to the farthest reaches of possibility to show that Christ's love for us will never end. George Robinson writes in his hymn, I am his and he is mine, this, this stanza. Loved with everlasting love, led by grace that love to know. Glorious Spirit from above, Thou hast taught me it is so. Oh, this full and perfect peace, oh, this transport all divine, in a love which cannot cease, I am His, and He is mine. One last observation, I mean, we could go on and on. I have a whole series on the love of God that we did some years ago. But one last observation of verse 1. Because of the work of Christ calling us to himself and taking us taking on his character is why the world hates us at large. The world hates us. Oh, they, may, they won't come right out and admit it, but they do. All you have to do is stand up for Christ, stand up for righteousness, emulate the life of Christ wherever you go, and you will find opposition and hatred. It seems incredible that those who love the most and the best are hated the most. But no servant is greater than the one they serve. They hated Jesus, and they will hate us too. We must be prepared for that and count it joy when you're hated and despised for Christ's sake. For the blessings of God will be upon you. Verses 2 and 3 
says, during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his outer garments. He took up that towel, poured water in the basin basin to wash his disciples' feet. Now, this is the beginning of the first section of chapter 13. And a little background of the setting of this chapter helps us understand what is happening. Now, I'd like for you to turn to Luke chapter 22, where I read just a few moments ago. Luke 22. And I want you to look at verses 14 and 15, which I read earlier. And then we're going to look at verses 24 to 27. Notice what he says in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and his apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus knew that he was going to suffer. The prophets had, had predicted it. Now drop down to verse 24. One of the most appalling passages, I think, in all of Scripture. For it reminds me of the church of modern day. Notice what it says. A dispute also rose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. That is unconscionable. Here they are at the table. The Lord has desired to have this this last Passover with them. He has already told them He is going to suffer. They begin to ask one another, uh, Is it I? Is it I? They're all asking. They have no idea who it is. And And in the wake of that blow, They start to argue with one another. As to which one of them would be the greatest. And he said to them, Kings of the the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them that are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at table. Is it, is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as one who serves. Now we get the rest of the information from John chapter 13. Because what happened here... In the midst of their arguing, in the midst of their wrangling with one another, they're arguing, I can imagine that they're arguing over who's going to sit next to Christ at the table, or who's going to recline next to Him. Sometimes this happens when uh, 
we visit with our grandchildren. And they learned very, they learned very quickly to the first one in gets the best. And so long before we sit down to dinner, it's not uncommon for them to come and say, Papa, can I sit next to you at dinner? And I say, sure. And Mary gets the same thing. So they're, if they don't get to sit next to us, many times an argument ensues. And then I just say to, we say to Teresa, you decide. <laughs> you decide where they sit. So we're not the bad guy she is. <clears throat> They've just come to dinner. They've sat down with Jesus. And they're arguing. And in the midst, I can imagine that in the midst of this argument, Jesus gets up. He takes off his cloak, wraps the towel around his waist, fills the basin full of water. And while they're still arguing, he begins to wash their feet. We will see that Jesus teaches them a valuable lesson on the meaning of real leadership and real servanthood, which go hand in hand. The meal has just been observed, and Satan would very soon enter into Judas Iscariot. You know, this, as far as I know, there is only one other place, one other person, in Scripture, that it is said that Satan himself actually entered into. One is Judas. The other is the Antichrist of the future. And there's a great comparison. If you look at study both of those personalities in Scripture, there's a great comparison between Judas and the Antichrist. Now, that's, an, that's another lesson. So, we find that um, Judas is going to betray the Lord to the authorities. And when it says that the devil had already put into the heart of Judas to betray him, the word put there into his heart is a word that is in the perfect tense. It's a verb of the perfect tense. Which means... That the evil plot of Satan was in Judas from some time in the past. And it is still being contemplated by Judas in the present. That's what the perfect does. It, the action happens in the past and moves on into the present. So Judas has been thinking about this over and over, mulling it in his mind. And of course, it is the work of Satan that is prompting it. That deep-seated plan will eventually turn into action on Judas' part. This causes the account of the brilliance of the love of Christ and the light that it radiated to be compared with the darkness of Satan's domain and the darkness of Judas's heart. Here we have the stark comparison of Judas... And his hatred of Christ and the 
love that Christ has for his disciples, including Judas. Jesus will, in this narrative, soon be washing the feet of the man who will help send him to the cross. Is that not like Jesus? From Satan's vantage point, the cross is a dark and bleak example of his hold on people in darkness, of which Judas is a member. I find it's, my wife and I were talking about this not long ago, how is it that the disciples had no idea that Judas was an imposter. Wouldn't you think they would have seen something that would have told them? Well, we know he was a thief because he took money for himself out of the money bag. He was the treasurer of the twelve. And now we see that he is a deceiver and A betrayer. But this darkness that we see in Judas and Satan's darkness holds Christ against the backdrop of that darkness and makes his love all the more glorious and all the more bright. In verse 3, we're told what Jesus already knew was that his time had come to die. That the Father had turned over all authority to the Son. This was said much earlier by Jesus. And the Son is now acting under the direction of the Father in the events that will eventually take his life on earth. I would have you to notice that all of the events of this dinner were pre-selected and, and uh, orchestrated by Christ. He is the host of this dinner. And in that day, when a person put on a dinner, it was the responsibility of the host to provide everything that was needed for that dinner. That's why when they went to the wedding in chapter 2, and they ran out of wine... It became, it became a really big deal because whoever had prepared as host for that dinner did not prepare enough wine to last through the celebration. And so Jesus would have been responsible to make all the arrangements for the dinner. One of those arrangements would have been to have a slave or a servant there, an attendant we might call them, to wash the feet of the people that were attending the dinner. It was a common thing. During that day, people wore sandals. They didn't wear closed, fully closed shoes around their feet. They wore sandals, and as they walked through the the streets, their feet would become very dirty, 
from the dust of the streets and the roads. So, much like we wash our hands before we eat, at least we're supposed to, they washed, they had their feet washed. It was, it was a common courtesy that was done by any host. And so it seems intentional that there was no slave present to wash the feet of the guest. There was a bowl of water and a towel, but no attendant to do the foot washing. So in order to show the disciples what true servant leadership looked like in practice, Jesus took off his outer garment, that would be his cloak, and wrapped himself with a towel around his waist and began to wash the disciples' feet. This act of foot washing was for the least and the lowest of slaves. Slaves generally in that day had various rankings. Some slaves were stewards who who oversaw the, the full property of their and management of their owners' uh, properties. The foot washing slaves were the lowest. Whenever someone would enter the house as a guest, it was the responsibility of this slave to wash the feet of the guests. And it was considered courtesy to those who were there. Now, the disciples may have been arguing about who would sit in the place of honor. There would certainly have been order among and rank among the disciples. We see that very clearly. Peter, James, and John were what we call the inner circle of disciples. They were the ones that went up on the mountain with Jesus when he was transfigured. And in many other places, we see those three together. As far as the others, we don't know if they had any special ranking at all, except for Judas, who was obviously the treasurer, or the, kept the money. So, the others are not mentioned in any rank. So, were the disciples aware That Jesus was preparing to do the task of a lowly slave? Did they even see that he had laid his garment aside? Can you not almost hear the hush go around the room as they realize that their master is washing their feet? I imagine that shouting and arguing has now ceased. And all the attention is on Jesus serving as a lowly servant. Now, I'm not trying to add or take away from the word. This is all speculation. But one thing stands out. And that is the state of mind found in Jesus Christ as he faces the cross And his state of mind is one of peace 
and of love for his own. He wants them to experience his peace and he wants them to experience his love. That's his state of mind. He sees to their comfort and their cleanliness. He refresh, he, they are refreshed by his goodness of intention. God the Father has now given everything into his hand. Everything. Nothing is left undone. The things that happen next happen at, under the decree of God from the foundation of the world. Now most men facing death will experience a high agitation, a high level of agitation. But Jesus is composed. His death is coming just a few hours from now. And what does he do? He washes his disciples' feet. In his mind, and in reality, the battle is already complete. He speaks of it as already having happened. Because it was sure to happen. He's anticipating the joyful reunion. The triumphal reunion with his Father in heaven. He had come from the Father, and now he was going back to him. John Calvin comments on this. He says, quote, John means that no agitation of this sort was to be found in Christ, because though he was to be immediately betrayed by Judas, still he knew that the Father had given all things into his hand. It may be asked, how then was he reduced to such a degree of sadness and that he sweat blood if he was so composed? I reply, both are, were necessary. It was necessary that he should have a dread of death. And it was necessary that, notwithstanding this, he should fearlessly discharge everything that belonged to the office of the mediator. Only Jesus could perform this. No one else could have. What is it that was ahead of him? It was the terrible betrayal of one of the twelve, which shook up the whole group. It was the agony in the garden. It was the arrest by the temple guards along with Judas who led him led them to him it was the various trials that he would undergo throughout that night it was the humiliation of being beaten publicly the mocking and the flogging and finally the cross itself and the suffering he would endure for the sake of sinners like us. There is so much here. 
that we could spend a great deal of time unpacking it all. Next week, I want to deal with his actual washing of the disciples' feet and the 